For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Grainger.com, or just stop by. Granger For the ones who get it done. Coming up on this week's show, Billy Mitchell has had his world records reinstated. An old school survival horror hits its goal. And we get the inside story on Microprose with Wild Bill Steeler. This week's show is brought to you by Harry's and our friends at Gymshark. Hello and welcome to the Retro Hour podcast, episode number 230, your weekly dose of retro gaming and technology news with me, Dan Wood. Me, Ravi Abbott. And me, Joe Fox. I thought it was quite fitting this is episode 230 and uh, Ravi and Joe are both waiting for dentist appointments at the moment. That's it. <laughs> I was like, what's he on about? And then I realised that's such a dad joke. <laughs> I had to get it out there. Sorry, guys. Now, it's time to get our nostalgia on for the next hour or so, reminiscing about classic video games, vintage technology, old computers, and of course, a special guest on the show as well. Now, this week, we've been really excited to get the story of one of the most infamous early video games companies who are actually back again for the 2020s. Today, we're going to be joined by Wild Bill Steely to get the story of Microprose. Now, unfortunately, Ravi couldn't make this interview, even though you're a massive fan of Microprose games. Joe and I, though, we took it upon ourselves to interview Wild Bill, and I've got to say, I think he lived up to his name, didn't he, Joe? Yeah, it was an absolutely incredible journey to go through with him. Like, I mean, I loved every second of the interview. I was hanging on every single word they had to say, and he really did live up to his name. He's a wild guy, and he had some really wild stories to talk about, some really funny stories about Tom Clancy, um, some funny stories about coming to the UK, going to Japan. Really, really, really interesting stuff. Because he came from the Air Force, right? So he was kind of yeah. in the Air Force doing simulators and then ended up in the video game industry. I can't wait to hear this one. Because he founded Microprose in 1982, obviously with Sid Meier. And then, of course, we're talking about games like XCOM, Civilization, Railroad Tycoon. I mean, they really were the kings of strategy games throughout the 80s to like the mid-90s, really, weren't they, Microprose? Oh, yeah, they were, they were strategy, but they were also simulators as well yeah. with his new company he's he's getting into the world of vr with the revival of microprose and i've got to say he definitely did live up to the name well bill the stories he was telling me and joe before we started recording um <laughs> probably a bit too x-rated to play on the podcast unfortunately <laughs> but we have got some brilliant tell you've got to hear about the story coming up actually about sid meyer uh, standing up a date that he was on on the caribbean island and essentially leaving this girl abandoned apparently that was quite common at microprose they uh they had a bit of an affinity for the ladies, it turns out. Yeah, yeah. There was quite quite a few funny stories, a few X-rated stories as well. <laughs> and I always love it when a guest says, oh, can, can we cut this bit or can we make sure we don't record this? <laughs> <laughs> you know it's going to be a good interview when that happens. Yeah. So while Bill is going to be our special guest talking about the history of Microprose and their rebirth, because, of course, he's involved again with Microprose and bringing out new games. So we'll get the story about that. He's going to be on the show in around 15 minutes from now. Now, of course, we're going to go 
through the biggest retro gaming headlines of the last week as well. Some really good stories to talk about this week. Before we do, let's take a moment to say a big thank you to this week's sponsor, our very good friends at Gymshark. Now, if you're not familiar with Gymshark, they've actually got a really interesting history. They were formed in 2012 in a garage in Birmingham here in the UK. And since then, over the last eight years, they've emerged as a leading brand in their industry with a worldwide family of over 50 million people in 150 countries around the world. And the idea is that they want to unite the conditioning community, unlock potentials, build empowered communities around it as well. And recently, of course, with gyms being closed, a lot of us have been working out at home and we've had to kind of do our own training routines as well. I know you've been working out quite a lot recently, Joe. Yeah, so um, I do love going to the gym. Um, and since lockdown, I've got into a really, really nice routine of doing about a half an hour workout every day and going for an hour walk on my lunch break. Now, Gymshark really, really kindly sent over quite a lot of gear, some jogging bottoms and some tank tops, what I really like to wear. Because what I used to do is just get my old band t-shirts, rip the sleeves off them and then just work out in them. (laughs) What I love about these tank tops that I've been wearing is they're just really breathable. I've been working out in the garden, getting a little bit sweaty, but this has really helped. And it's just kept me motivated knowing that like I've got, I know this sounds really daft, but I've got nice gear to wear, kind of go out there, keep nice and cool and you know, I've only got a couple of weights, been doing some press-ups, been doing some sit-ups, but it's really, really helped me. Um, and I know it helps uh, Ravi with his yoga as well. Yeah, so mine's a bit different to Joe's powerlifting and kind of muscle <laughs> stuff. I'm into like yoga and I, I do a bit of like muscle focus and stuff like that. And the routine that I do is I take my yoga mat out into the garden in the morning and then do like a bit of stretching. And I think it's important to kind of keep healthy and these gym sharp things are really nice. I, I'm into shorts and stuff like that. So yeah. I, I've got some shorts on at the moment and they're nice and airy for when you're out in the uh, garden doing your yoga. And especially at the moment, we've got a heat wave on. I mean, I found their jog bottoms really comfortable. That's out for bike riding. And, you know, I've got a puppy recently taking him out for a walk when it's warm. And I've got to say, just really comfy for like Rex in, in the back garden as well, <laughs> playing on my Nintendo Switch. So um, Gymshark are actually working with a load of creators and athletes at the moment that you might be familiar with. Ross Edgley, Ryan Garcia, Katie Taylor, Matt Does Fitness as well. And actually, if you download this show on Friday, as soon as it comes out, out if you're one of our early listeners they've actually got a 24-hour sale on right now they started last night on thursday 25th of june so it runs until tonight on friday at 7 p.m and you can get up to 50 percent off select lines but either way we want you to go and check out their range and see what you think we think you'll be impressed and of course for doing this you'll be helping out the podcast as well check out their website at gymshark.com forward slash the retro hour gymshark.com forward slash the retro hour thanks to our very good friends at Gymshark. Now, of course, the story that's been everywhere, even in the mainstream media over the last week, has been about Billy Mitchell. Now, I'm sure everyone listening probably knows who Billy is. I mean, he was in that famous movie that came out in the mid 2000s, King, King of Kong. Kong. Yeah, yeah, and he was—he's kind of a—he's um, known for being a world record setter in video games. But there has been a bit of controversy over the last couple of years. I mean, from my understanding, I mean, I won't pretend to be an expert on this, but I did watch a video by a YouTuber called Apollo Legend that came out a couple of years ago. And they were making allegations that essentially Billy Mitchell's Donkey Kong records in particular weren't actually done the way he claimed. They kind of showed some evidence in that video 
saying that it was on MAME, an emulation platform, essentially. And he claimed at the time that he didn't use MAME and it was on real hardware. And then Twin Galaxies, I mean, we've had Walter Day on before, who were kind of the, you know, the keepers of all the high scores. They struck off his high scores. And then the Guinness Book of Records removed him as well. And I know there's been court cases. He's been, you know, threatening legal action with a lot of people. All that's been going on. But over the last week, it looks like his Guinness Book of Records results have actually been put back in there. Yeah, so last week, actually, this was like about an hour after we recorded the show. Yeah, on Thursday. Uh, I contacted Joe and I was like, oh, Joe, look at this. There's a statement from the um, Guinness official records guys. And they were talking about how Billy's got all of his titles reinstated. And also Walter Day was on there. And it, it, it seems like Billy's provided the evidence for them that satisfied them to reinstate these kind of records. Um, he also did an official announcement on uh, Twitch and he was, he was talking about it, saying it was witnesses and stuff like that. There, were, there wasn't many details about, so uh, I'm not kind of sure what, what this evidence was, but uh, obviously it seems to be good enough for the Guinness Book of Records and those guys. Yeah, from what I understand, he, when they were originally taken off him, he said that he had, he had tapes like with evidence yeah. of him playing it on there. Um, but from what I understand, that he's actually he's managed to get people to kind of account that they were there and that they saw it and that he's managed to get statements from witnesses to sign that they were there um, from what I've seen. So, it, you know, it, it's cool that they're back on, but at the same time, it's just, it's a little bit, it's kind of clouded with mystery a little bit, I think. It is. And I mean, the fact that Billy's also been doing lawsuits against, you know, the, the YouTuber put that video up, Apollo Legend, He's um, he filed a lawsuit against him last month for defamation. Uh, I think the next hearing in the Twin Galaxies lawsuits is sued Walter Day as well. There's going to be a hearing scheduled for uh, July 6th as well. So all this is kind of ongoing at the moment. And it does kind of seem like, you know, anyone that's kind of taking sides on this or speaking against him, I mean, he's doing a lot of lawsuits at the moment, which is weird. I mean, if you don't want people to talk about it, what's that, what's that old thing that happened? The Streisand effect, isn't it? You know, when you, you try and take things down on the internet, generally it gets people talking about them more. Yeah, yeah, yeah. definitely, because we're talking about it now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, and, and I think it's like Billy's total identity. If yeah. you look at him, he is that that video game dude that beat Donkey Kong. He's, uh, you know, that's his, his total identity. So for him, it must be a huge thing to kind of have his records back and, you know, get put back into that position. It's kind of verification. Yeah, I mean, you know, he's built like a you know, 30 or 40 year career on those high scores, obviously been in movies and everything. So it is his reputation on the line here. And I could understand, you know, if it was me and they were legitimate scores that I had and that happened, you could understand that, you know, you'd, you'd want to get that reinstated again. But I think, like you said, it's until we know exactly what he showed the Guinness World Record guys to convince them, then... I mean, a lot of people are still very suspicious about and, the whole thing. And I but. think also a lot of people are divided over it and they're not divided yeah. over it because of, you know, the the records being removed. They're divided over it because the first film, King of Kong, was quite divisive. You know, we've had Walter Day that's talked about it, that the editing and stuff was a bit different and how the guy to how the guys appeared in real life. And, and I think that's kind of started people to be in these different camps and then it's gone on to these records being removed and each camp's grown. So, you know, there's there's some pro people and there's some uh, 
against people as well. So it's it's an interesting balance at the moment. And if you do watch that film, I mean, yeah, Billy, he didn't come out like a, you know, like a humble guy in that movie, did he? And I think that was part of his character, you know, that he's kind of the big, arrogant kind of, you know, the pro gamer and everything. And that's kind of his brand, isn't it, I guess? So, I mean, obviously we've never met the guy. Hopefully we will. I mean, th- th- there is talks that he might be coming to uh, Flashback 2020 if, um, if that happens, you know, later on this year. So we might be able to get the story in Holland if we, if we get out there this year. But, um, yeah, until we hear a bit more about this story, I'm open to seeing what this evidence is before I cast a judgment, I think. Yeah, it'd be nice to get more details, wouldn't it? Now, you found this really cool bundle <laughs> with a load of games. I must admit, being a fan of the Leisure Suit Larry, the original game, and I played a couple of the later ones, I didn't actually realise quite how many games in the franchise have been released over the years. This is a bundle of seven Leisure Suit Larry games. I'm loving some of these titles in here as well. Yeah, so like these titles are really interesting because they're kind of going through all the periods of Leisure Suit Larry, but also all the changes in technology. So if you look at the very first one, it's it's, it's very kind of like ScumVM or, or, yeah. or one of these kind of titles. And then you get to the, the end of it and it's fully animated and you've got scenes with gills talking in it and stuff. And it's really interesting. And some of the titles, like you said, are absolutely amazing. So I'm just going to go through them now because... Um, uh, you may recognize some and you, you may not have heard of some, but uh, first one was in the land of the lounge lizards. Yep. Second was goes looking for love in several wrong places. <laughs> <laughs> the third was passionate patty in pursuit of pulsating pectorials. <laughs> <laughs> Try saying that after a few JD and <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, Magnum cum laude as well. Passionate patty does a little undercover work. Shape up or slip out and love for sale. Now, I've only played, I think, about two of them on that list. The first one, obviously, I mean, that was kind of the game that we all played. And you got that infamous screen at the beginning where it was like a quiz to prove that you were over 18 years old. Yeah. And uh, you'd always go down to your dad and be like, Dad, I've just got a couple of questions for my school homework. Could you help me out with? <laughs> Who was the president of America in 1930? Um, and then you get it in the game. And I mean, Leisure Suit Larry games have always just been full of smut and and you go through these games, and I mean, when the, when the graphics kind of change to 3D Larry, and he's got that kind of big head, <laughs> they always look quite amusing to me. But you've actually played some of the later ones. You're, you're a big fan of the recent one. Was that Love for Sale? Uh, Love for Sale was like one of the last ones, but the most right. recent one um, is is a total different game. It's not in this compilation, but right, also okay. they've they've been like redoing Leisure Suit Larry 1 as well. But I'd say Love for Sale was that period where you kind of got into Windows and uh broken sword was around and and kind okay. of the, those titles so it's like animated like that but this package is crazy it's one pound 49 for all of these games and that works in the united kingdom and in america as well and they're all redeemable on steam and that is a lot of hours of smut isn't it for yeah. <laughs> so good little package and obviously legendary games and we we did an episode with our load didn't we all about it a couple of years ago which um definitely worth a listen if you're a fan of larry Right then, now this is an interesting story as well. Um, A little bit of a discussion point that I spotted on Google the other day. And this is an article on a website called Collider.com. And this is by Matt Goldberg. And he's talking about why he thinks retro gaming needs a revolution. And this kind of comes on the back of the recent, you know, PlayStation 5 announcements as well. And obviously Microsoft bringing out the new Xbox later this year as well. And he's talking about the fact that when new generations come out, the fact that backwards compatibility only works to a point. And the further back you go, 
the harder it gets to play games from older consoles. And I think the point of this article is that he essentially he's talking about the fact that, you know, you can still watch a movie from like 50, 60 years ago really easily. But trying to play a video game from maybe a childhood on something that's, you know, not been upgraded for a modern system can be tricky. Yeah, what I think is interesting is like with films, obviously, as like new, you know, um, media comes out, you know, they re-release films. So, you know, you go from video to DVD, from DVD to Blu-ray. And obviously that does kind of happen uh, with retro games. You know, you get HD remasters and compilations and stuff like that, like Leisure Suit Larry, for example. But I think in in films, it's so much more common, like tens and tens of thousands of films will come out again on DVD and then come out again on Blu-ray, whereas only a handful of games. So I do get where he's coming from. But at the same time, reading the article, I just felt like he was being a little bit mardy about like modern TVs. Like, I don't think it's that hard to find TVs with scarts and, you know, and uh, component cables and stuff. And also there is a lot, you know, he was like, oh, it's really shady buying like third party, you know, HDMI, um, you know, what the HDMI connectors and stuff like that. I was like, well, in our experience, I know from from you guys as well, like you've never really had issues with them. So I don't think it's it's that hard to retro game personally. Yeah, he's saying here that the problem is a lot of the games are unavailable and they need to be streamlined. And it's like the systems like AntStream, which is streamlining stuff now mm-hmm. and making it available for people. There's there's lots of things out there. Uh, I, I think he he wants like a dream universal machine that will play everything and hdmi perfectly but that's never going to happen and i get it as well i mean he's talking about a few games that he played on the gamecube stuff like you know fire emblem uh, path of radiance skies of arcadia legends and stuff like that that are not on like the switch yet for example but i mean you'd mentioned then about AntStream, and obviously that is an attempt to kind of get this universal streaming platform and it's only been around about what a year so it's still early days, and they are obviously working to kind of get as many titles as they can on there. But I mean, you even look at something like Netflix, and it's not universal. Every film ever made is definitely not on Netflix. I mean, you know, probably less than 1% of movies are on there. It, it might be, if you want to watch an old Star Wars movie, that's easy to get like a 4K Blu-ray. But if you're into more niche movies, maybe from the 80s or 90s that only came out on VHS, there are movies that it is actually quite difficult to track down legally without going to, you know, torrent websites and that kind of thing. And I think it's the case with video games as well. I mean, like you said then, Joe, I mean, if you are really keen to play these games, it's not hard to find like a GameCube on eBay and uh, there are so many third-party HDMI mods and stuff you can do to hook it up to your modern TV if you really want to do it. I admit it would be nice if it was easier and like AntStream had like, you know, the entire GameCube library and everything on there as well. But when you're going through so many different companies and so many different licenses and copyrights and everything, it's uh, it does feel a bit of an impossible dream, and, I think. Yeah, and I, and I do get his point as well that like... If if you if you want to run GameCube stuff on your Switch, you're gonna to have to hack it, and you're gonna to have to do the kind of user side of things where the the companies aren't actually focusing on the older titles; they're they're focusing on the newer titles at the moment. And there are a lot of lot of lost lost franchises as well, and lost series like Road Rash. Come on, we want a new Road yeah. Rash. <laughs> But it's again, it's early days with this kind of stuff. I think only it really only feels like in the last maybe, maybe even five years or so that companies like Nintendo have actually started to take their back catalogue seriously. I mean, I know you had like the virtual console and stuff on the Wii, 
But yeah. now you look at um, you look at like the Switch, the fact that they're putting all these snares and NES games on there regularly. You know that anyone can play. Has got a subscription to their online service, and they're putting a lot of new games on there every couple of weeks. So it kind of does feel like now with stuff like mini consoles coming out as well, a lot of these companies are actually taking their back catalogs a bit more seriously. I mean, I'd love to see Sega revisit a few of their classic franchises you know it'd be nice to see like you know a new sonic adventure game for example stuff like that so there is still work to be done but it does kind of feel like we're in the early stages of that happening now they just need to get a gamecube mini but the problem with that would be imagine how small the disc would be they'd be like a polo that you'd have to put in there. <laughs> i mean i i think it will come to the switch eventually you'll get n64 games on there and you'll get gamecube games you know whether it's this generation of the switch or the next one you know if they need a bit more power to do it but it does look like you know they're realizing what an easy win it is to kind of just put these on like some virtual console rather than selling hardware but i mean like you said ravi they're always going to focus on the new games because you can sell those for like 50 60 quid yeah now let's talk about another old game that i know joe you've been quite pleased to uh See, having a bit of a revival. This is a 90s-style retro 3D horror game that's coming out on the Nintendo Switch. And this is a game called Elisa. And this is kind of a throwback to those horror games that I know you love so much on the PlayStation. Yeah, so this is a game I mentioned as one of my retro picks uh, about six months ago now. Um, And essentially, it was just kind of a demo for PC. And it plays kind of like a cross between the original Resident Evil and Alone in the Dark, the original Alone in the Dark, set in the mansion, And you play as a detective in the 1920s, I believe. And the enemies are like clockwork dolls and they're trying to turn you into a clockwork doll. And it's like that classic tank controls. Now, I didn't realize until this week that there'd actually been a Kickstarter for it. And it has been successful. It's hit 30,000 euros with 750 backers, um, which means that it's not only going to be coming out as, as a PC game, but it's also going to be coming out as a Switch game for a digital download, which I'm really excited about because of I'm not a PC gamer. I've not got a PC set up to play, unfortunately. So I'm really excited that it's coming to Switch. And I love the look of it. It's not going to be coming out until 2021. And the guy hasn't finished the game. He has a, he's, you know, he's only made the demo so far. But he says he's aiming for it to be a four to five hour campaign. And he's also going to put some side quests in there as well, some side like optional missions. So I'm really excited about this. And the demo is completely free to play online at the moment. Um, and if you're like me and you can't play it, there's plenty of videos out there of people playing it. It looks awesome. It looks kind of PS1-y. Yeah, like, that, that's the, the whole point of it. It's meant to look like, you know, one of these classic kind of PS1. Like It describes itself as like a survival en- adventure game, I guess. Yeah, and like on the, on, the, on the first image of the trailer, she's pulling in on the train. And like yeah. all of the anti-aliasing's messed up, like <laughs> PlayStation <laughs> One star, but yeah. it, it gives it a really nice aesthetic. I love the fact that we're putting pixel tearing and uh, polygon jag- jaggies and stuff like that back into games now intentionally. <laughs> you know, used to play yeah, with PlayStation used to avoid One. them. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's like when you know you're releasing a song on like you know CD and they used to put the vinyl crackles back on, and we spent all that time developing digital music, yeah. and then <laughs> yeah, people put it back on the songs itself. It reminds me a bit of that. Do you I think this motion also- blur, Dan. Yeah, all, all that is coming back again. It's weird. Uh, but this game, I mean, it's set in the 1920s. And yeah, I mean, looking at this, it does remind me so much of those early Resident Evil games. And there's a bit in the trailer, actually, right at the beginning that I'll put in our show notes. It's really creepy. Uh, you got the agent, Elisa, she's just walking through this room and then a massive head just walks out of these curtains and round the corner. It actually looks really creepy. Yeah, it does look really creepy. So I, I can't wait to grab it. I'm, I'm really disappointed that I missed the Kickstarter. I just didn't know it was a thing at all. 
and it was only like 15 euros as well for a digital copy of the game so I'm hoping it will still be that cheap when it comes out. <laughs> but if you have got a PC, you can actually download a demo for free. So I'll put that and everything else we talked about in our show this week at theretrohour.com. Now, before we chat to Wild Bill Steely and the history of Microprose, let's give another big thank you to another supporter this week, our very good friends at Harry's. Now, Harry's is such a cool company, and we love working with Harry's, uh, because it's two guys, Jeff and Andy, who were fed up with overpriced razors, and they decided to fix shaving by starting their own company. They bought their own factory and called it Harry's, and the idea is they take less profit and they offer great quality products for a very fair price. Because, I mean, if you look at their prices, their amazing quality blades are almost half the price of the leading five-blade brand. And Joe, I know recently, I said to Joe, you need to try Harry's for yourself. So you did it. You shaved off your beard. I did. So I grew a nice big lockdown beard. Um, I didn't see (laughs) my parents or my in-laws for the first, you know, nine or ten weeks of lockdown. Um, and then they came around in the garden, they saw me and my dad was like, you need to get that off your face right away. <laughs> so I took the plunge. Um, it was a nice, impressive beard as well. And I was really concerned that I I actually suffer with acne quite bad. And, you know, I've not had a clean shave in a long time. I usually get my barber to do it with an electric razor, you know, and I went in with the clean shave. And you know what? It was really smooth. The gel was really good. And it actually left me with pretty much no irritation. And I'm a guy with sensitive skin. So if you start seeing me, you know, at conventions and stuff in the future, sporting, you know, a baby face, completely clean shaven, you know, it's going to be Harry's because it didn't irritate my face. And your wife can't keep her hands off you now. Well, she said it was really weird kissing me after. (laughs) (laughs) So we want you to give Harry's a try for yourself. Start shaving with Harry's today and be baby smooth like Joe. You can get your trial set for just £3.95. And of course, you'll be supporting the Retro Out podcast by doing this. You'll get your trial set delivered to you as well, including a razor handle, a five blade cartridge, foam shaving gel and a travel blade cover as well. You can do it right now by heading to the website, harrys.com forward slash retro harrys.com forward slash retro thanks to our good friends at harry's and also can we just take a moment to give a big thank you to our favorite people in the world our incredible patrons ah yes our patrons are absolutely amazing you know we have nice chats on the discord we do we do patron meetups as well and they're really good fun because people are showing us all their own equipment and kind of we're all just nerding out We also have some amazing perks. So if you're a patron, then you get an ad-free episode. Also, some of the higher perks, you'll get a T-shirt. There's loads of stuff. But we're also trying to aim to get a studio. Now, with the studio, a lot of people usually take their kind of patron profit and use it as an income. But what we want to do is reinvest it and get a studio so we've got a base for the retro hour so we can help produce more content and also so it can flow a bit better because... We're used to recording in there. And, you know, we've recorded for quite a while. So people may be used to us with this sound. But listen back to those older episodes. My <laughs> God, it's clear. Well, I'm in the studio now. You guys are doing it remotely. So I'm still tying everything together in here. But like we said before, we don't own this studio. So we can only get in for an hour or two a week. When we get our own, we're going to do all sorts in there. We've got plans to do video, get video cameras set up permanently in there, do extra podcasts as well, and really just focus. We can be in there all day and just get guests more around the world and really improve this show and ensure that it's got longevity in the future as well. And thanks to your support, we are well on our way there. So let's give a big thank you to this week's patron supporters. We're trying to get through as many names as we can. Thank you so much to Jake Worrell, James Alston, Casey, Patrick Bregger, and Mark McDougall. 
who all made donations into the running of the show. And if you'd like to do the same, you can find that right now on our website, theretrohour.com, and hopefully you'll join us in a couple of weeks for our next patrons hangout. Right then, let's get the inside story on the legendary Microprose. While Bill Steely is our special guest next on the Retro Hour podcast. You're listening to the Retro Hour podcast and it is our absolute pleasure to welcome on this week's very special guest. Today, we're going to be getting the story of one of the most infamous video games companies of all time and one that's recently made a comeback as well. We're going to be getting the story of Microprose with this week's special guest. Welcome to the Retro Hour podcast, Wild Bill Steely. Hey guys, thanks for inviting me and... uh... You know, the issue is everybody says, well, why are you Wild Bill? And I said, you know, John Staley, MBA, might sell some games, but Wild Bill, the fighter pilot, sold many more games than just the good old salesman. So <laughs> I, I thought Wild Bill and the flight suit uh, helped me sell games, but I got the Wild Bill because I played lacrosse, which is an old Indian game in America, at the Air Force Academy, and I didn't know anything about it. And I went out, and the uh, the coach said, "Okay, here's what you do: you go out out and stand in front of that goal, and when a, one of those uh, attackmen comes around, you yell at the top of your lung and uh, crash into him." And he says, "And what's your name, Cadet?" I said, "Steely, sir." He says, "Your first name, dumb squad." I said, "What, Bill, sir?" And I go out there in front of that goal. I don't know what I'm doing. I've never played lacrosse. And one of those little tackmen came around, and I yelled and crashed into it. Knocked the kid out. I broke his helmet three places. And I figure, oh, boy, I'm in trouble. I'm in trouble. The coach comes running out, sticks his finger right in my chest, and says, wow, Bill, you got a job. And I was <laughs> a priest defenseman for four years, running into people and screaming at the top of my lungs. So that's how you get Bill. Well, I mean, obviously, Microprose were known for doing some fantastic flight sims. And I mean, you must have got to fly some amazing planes as well, like, well, like A-37, stuff like that, when you were in the Air Force? Well, I went, uh, my dad uh, in World War II was a B-17 and B-24 navigator. He really wanted to be the pilot. And I saw all these letters growing up where dad kept writing the war department saying, hey, can I go back to pilot training? They never let him. And he ended up being an infantry officer in Korea. So when I lost him when I was only eight years old and had the distinct bad pleasure of walking behind my dad's caisson at Arlington. You know, that's where we bury a lot of veterans uh, in America. And uh, I was just eight years old. I was crushed. My dad's gone. And uh, I knew that I wanted to do what he wanted to do. I wanted to make him proud, even if he wasn't here anymore. So I decided to focus right then on going to uh, the Air Force Academy and going to fly. And again, I had to pull a little rank here because I didn't have good enough eyes. So when at the Air Force Academy, just before I went off to go to navigator school, which again was would be disappointing to me, uh, I memorized the eye charts. <laughs> wow. <laughs> so the, uh, the flight surgeon says, uh, says, read line 8A, and I go, okay. Blip. He goes, Lieutenant, did you memorize this eye chart? I said, yes, sir, I sure did. He says, really smart. Check, go to pilot training. So uh, I went to pilot training. I did very well in pilot training near the top of my class, and I was an instructor pilot for five years. And as I'm getting ready to go to the next airplane, they told me I had an F-4, and I'm all excited. I want to be an F-4 Phantom pilot. It ended up being a C-5 Galaxy, which is a great airplane, but it's 
being in the airline business and stopped being in the fighter pilot business. So I left active duty and went back to graduate business school at the Wharton School, very good school. But I went to the Air National Guard and I got to fly the A-37 and I would, I dropped more bombs in New Jersey and the darn place is still there. So <laughs> a great time. A-37 is a great little airplane, 400 knots, 100 feet buzzing around, popping up, shooting smoke rockets at targets and calling in the big guys. Great fun. That's fantastic. So you've been playing computer games since 1963. Can you explain what the helicopter simulators were like back then? Well, uh, we didn't have code. We moved jumper cables around. I was at the Army Signal Research and Development Labs. I won a National Science Foundation uh, deal when I was in high school because I built radios. I actually built a radio and listened to the first Sputnik in uh, 1957, and I was 10 years old. So I was into science growing up, and uh, I got this scholarship, and I got to spend about six weeks up at Fort uh, Monmouth, New Jersey, and we were doing the Cobra helicopter, and we'd move jumper cables around, and that changed the characteristics of it, and then we'd get into the two different choppers we had there, and we'd fly against each other. We'd shoot each other down. We were dogfighting in helicopters who weren't really there. They just pretended to be there, and it was great fun, and... Uh, you know, I think I really helped them in my six weeks there. And I was, get, again, just a student. But I've been doing that, like I said, since 63. And then in, when I was at the academy in 66, 7, and 8, uh, we were playing a Star Trek game online. It was one of those things like the old uh, games text only. But we were blowing people up and yelling and screaming and having a great time and using mainframe computers. So, uh, and of course, in the military, you're simulate. You would rather never shoot anybody, but you have to simulate practicing it all the time. And that's where the whole simulation came about. And I, I heard you learned to program in Fortran in the, at the Air Force Academy. Your boss actually helped to create the Fortran language? The guy at General Instrument, who was the CEO of that company, uh, was a one of the founders of the Fortran language. It was a whole bunch of them all working for the space program that invented Fortran. And uh, I was uh, I left McKinsey and Company, a pretty famous uh, consulting company, to move to Baltimore because I was tired of taking the bus and train into New York an hour and a half each way on a good day. It was great learning as a guy right out of business school to be in New York City with the big boys, but I'd rather uh, go and uh, uh, be five minutes to the office. So I went to Baltimore to work for General Instrument, and uh, Jack was uh, known for quite a temper. And, uh, you know, I'm not a small child. I'm a, a big boy. And Jack was uh, known to throw uh, uh, telephones and anything else he'd get ahead on at some of the employees. Well, I did a spreadsheet for him, which is what, you know, consultants do. And he got mad and started coming at me. And I said, Jack, one more step, and I'm going to put your old butt on the floor. And from then on, I was his guy. From then on, whenever he had a problem, he came to me. And when I went in the game business, he said, Bill, you're going to run this division in, in, in a few years when I retire. I said, well, when are you going to retire, Jack? You're 65. He says, 85. <laughs> so I went, I went to the game industry. But he was always uh, cheering us along. So uh, it was amazing when sometimes when you stand up to people and let them know that uh, I respect you, sir, and thank you very much. But uh, don't come at me like you're going to hit me with something, you know? Once you started at General Instruments, what kind of things were you producing at the time? Uh, General Instrument had five divisions. We were basically very famous for lotteries and horse racing. 
we build all the computers. If you went to a horse race and put $2 down on a, on a horse to, uh, for win, place, or show, you were using our uh, our computers to calculate all the um, all the things that uh, all the odds and to tell you what you won. So we actually moved the computers around on, on trucks. We'd go to one racetrack for six weeks. The next racetrack would open up. We'd go to that one for six weeks. We were getting 5% of the handle. We didn't care if you won or lose. Just give us our 5%. And I went to General Instrument because their patent had four years to go, and they were trying to figure out what they were going to do next. So I was trying to help them find other businesses. But we built cash registers. We built computers. I mean, very smart people down there, but uh, I, I w ended up buying a home computer because my boss, Jack, would not allow me to use time sharing. He gave me a number two, a pack of number two pencils and a whole a green uh, sheets for me to do accounting statements. And I'm a smart, lazy guy. I want to know, hey, wh what is this thing called VisiCalc, which was the first spreadsheet program written by a friend of mine, Dan Bricklin. And uh, I went to buy a computer, and it was a, a, a I, I saw a Trash 80. You know what that is, the old radio show yeah. Yep. <laughs> yep. Uh, uh, and then I saw this brown computer with some kind of fruit with a bite out of it. And it had four colors, and next to that was this uh, thing where there was a game called Star Raiders. And I go, what is that? He said, that's a toy computer. I said, does it do um, VisiCalc? And they said, yep. I said, well, I'll take that one and the game. So I bought the Atari 800, 64K of memory, put the basic cartridge in, uh, so I could uh, do VisiCalc and play Star Raiders. So what the heck? <laughs> they were very underrated machines, I think, by a lot of people, you know, looking back. So I think, like you said, they could do really good arcade games, but actually they had a good operating system, a good version of BASIC on there as well. I think, you know, the Atari 400 and 800 were actually really good computers, weren't they? And a lot cheaper than something like the Apple, for example. And it had four joystick ports, and it had great games for it. Because Apple early didn't have great games, but I thought Star Raiders was a fantastic game. I actually did a, re a redo of it uh, 25 years later. So uh, I, I just wanted to have that computer. I actually wanted to play with the computer, but it, it was a good ex excuse. I could use it as a business expense. So there you go. So from there, how did you find out and meet Sid Meier? Well, uh, I'm in there doing my VisiCalc, doing my income statements, my balance sheets, my cash flow, and I heard there was a group in the back that was a users group for Atari computers. And I went back and I met Mr. Meyer and I realized he was a pirate. I said, <laughs> what? He said, oh, Bill, I'm not stealing software. I'm just looking at it. I'm going, wait a minute. That's quibbling at the Air Force Academy because you were taking somebody else's property and tearing it apart and looking at it to figure out how it worked. You are really actually a pirate, even if you didn't sell it. He said, well, I'm not selling it. I'm not giving it away. I said, well, you gave it to those four people. He said, just to look at. So, you know, there was this little bit of concern. And as an Air Force Academy graduate, I didn't feel that it was appropriate for me to deal with it. So I said, well, nice to meet you. And I went back because he was in the back because he was a systems analyst and I was number three on the finance side. Uh, and I'm sure you've heard the story, but we were in Las Vegas at a sales conference with all salesmen telling us how good they were going to be next year. It was really boring. And Sid was the only techie and I was the only finance person. And he says, come on, I know where there's some games. Let's get out of here because we'd been sitting through these boring meetings for two and a half days. And we went down and played the arcade games down at the bottom of the valleys right there in the in the corner, a famous corner in Las Vegas. And he kept kicking my butt at all the games until we found Red Baron. 
And uh, I thought since I was an Air Force pilot, I was flying the A-37 at the time, that uh, I'd be able to kick his butt, baby. And unfortunately, I didn't know that, as he said, he could memorize the algorithms watching it one time. And I'm going, wow, Sid, I scored 75,000 points. He scored 150. And we got then we got into a bragging contest. And he said he could make a better game in a week. And I said, well, if you can't, I can sell it. And I had to fulfill that uh, bet. And he brought me a game. Uh, I told him it was not very good and gave him four pages and why it wasn't very good. And he went and walked away dejectedly. And three weeks later, he brought it back and said, I fixed all those things you said. And now I had to sell it. So <laughs> I was stuck. I had to go sell it. <laughs> and what game was that? Hellcat Ace. It was the defense of Pearl Harbor from uh, uh, the Japanese. It was Battle Pearl Harbor, you know, December 7th, 41. And uh, I thought it was a great game for the Atari 800. And uh, my first sale was pretty fun. I was going back and forth between New York, New York and uh, Hunt Valley, Maryland, where our office was. And I'd try and find a computer store. And one night uh, I'm coming back and I stopped somewhere in New Jersey, Rahway, New Jersey, because I saw a computer store when the train went by. And I got off the train and I waited till two minutes to nine or five minutes to nine because I knew they closed at nine. And I walked in and the guy said, sir, we're closing. I said, well, I've got a game I want to show you. He says, we've got lots of games. I said, well, just give me five minutes. He said, OK, we sat down and played for two hours. And he had a great time. He thought it was a great game. He says, okay, I'll take 100 I go, wow. And he says, what are you going to charge me? I said, I looked around the store. Everything was twenty nine ninety five. I said, twenty nine ninety five. He says, you don't get it, kid. I'm a retailer. I get half off. I went, you do? <laughs> <laughs> and I had to call Sid and say, Sid, Sid, we need 100 of these. He says, Bill, we only got two of them. You got one and I got one. I said, well, we better find a way to get uh, another 98 anyway. And we hired the next-door neighbor kid to switch floppies between the two Atari 800 drives. We kept making games, and that's how we made the first 1,000 Hellcat Aces that we started selling was with the local neighborhood kid flipping uh, floppies. So off we went, and we were selling games, baby. So um, obviously that was Microprose began then, 1982. Where did the name Microprose come from? Well, because I didn't want to do smuggers. Sid Meier's user group might be kind of funny when you're uh, doing that, but I didn't think smuggers were going to work. And the three or four I offered were all had to do something with the Air Force and something with flying. And, you know, Sid, he literally didn't want to participate in the business decisions. And I heard him say a billion times, I hired a Wharton MBA to make those decisions. But he'd always make little comments, you know, just enough to – push in the direction he thought was the way to go. So, I mean, he was smart as a whip, as you know. And uh, he said, well, we're writing prose for microcomputers. How about microprose? I said, well, geez, he said, why didn't you say that about three days ago? And we'd have <laughs> saved all this discussion. But uh, there's more than one example of uh, Sid saying little things that turned into business policies. I think uh, about our second year in, uh, we were hurt and we did really well for the first two years. I hired uh, uh, three or four people. We start spending money. And then the third year, uh, maybe two and a half years in, we didn't have a lot of money. And I had three employees I had to pay. I actually had to hock my Volvo so I could uh, pay them for the month of July, two years after we started. I got to be 84 then. And we went to a trade, the trade show, the CES out there in Chicago and Hessware 
offered us a quarter million dollars cash for the new game we were demoing, demoing Solo Flight. I mean, I was ecstatic. Quarter million dollars cash. I didn't have to call anybody. I didn't have to ship anything. Yay! And uh, I came back after the trade show. Uh, Sid and I both went, but I got this right after. And I said, Sid, this is a really great offer. Hessware is going to give us $250,000 for Soul Flight. What do you think? He says, well, I hired a Wharton MBA to do that. I said, okay. And I start walking out of his office. And he goes, but I always heard you don't want to ever sell the family jewels. I went, Daggummit, Meyer, how come you're doing that to me all the time? And he just didn't think we should sell the game. And Hessware went bankrupt a month later. And I turned around, and just with me calling retailers and me talking to distributors, I was the only sales guy. Uh, we sold 50,000 copies at about 1747 uh, in the, uh, the fall of that year. So it's a good thing we didn't give it away and all because Sid says, I don't think we should sell it. It's that good. We can, we can sell this. And off we go with Microprose because we were originally only interested in making enough money so we could charge our cars off to the tax people. And then all of a sudden I started selling too many of them. And I don't know if you've heard the story, but basically I would call retailers and ask to buy Hellcat Ace. And we didn't have it. I'd say, well, didn't you see the great ads in Antique Magazine? Didn't you see that great review? It was just an average review. Well, you're a crummy computer store. I'm never going to uh, uh, come to your store ever again, and I'd hang up. And I'd do that three weeks in a row. And the fourth week, I'd call back and say, hey, I have a game called Hellcat Ace. Would you like to buy any for your store? <laughs> so by me telemarketing for the first two years, that's how we did most of our sales. <laughs> that's amazing. And how did you and Sid kind of like come up with the games? How did you decide what game to move on? Was there, was there a lot of arguments, a lot of differences in your choices? Not originally, because Sid did Hellcat Ace because of the uh, Red Baron arcade game we played. So he knew to get me interested as a pilot, as an Air Force Academy graduate, he had to do something airplane. Because he'd been making games. His claim to fame is before he met me, he sold four games for a total of $800. My first sale was more than that. So he was brilliant at games and brilliant at music, brilliant at everything. A photographic mind, except business. So as somebody wrote once before, if you get a really, really good technology guy, but he don't have to sell, you don't have a business. If you have a really good salesman, but he's got nothing to sell, you don't have a good business. But if you put those two kind of brains together and they get along and they like each other and they're kind of working together, that's the perfect combination. So Sid was brilliant at doing the first few games. I was, uh, I don't know if I was brilliant. I was just very good at selling them and making a big deal and trying to do the marketing. So I did the finance, the marketing, and the sales myself for two years. And it turned into something good. Uh, so I think it was just uh, lucky for me and lucky for Sid that we happened to get together. Because otherwise, as someone said, I'd have had a boring job in corporations my whole life. And Sid had been a systems engineer with a hobby his whole life. But putting us together turned into a pretty nice company. Well, that formula obviously works. I mean, Microprose became profitable by your second month, and then by 1986, you were in $10 million in sales, which, uh, as you know, you hit the ground running. Yes, we did. Well, the, I think 86 is when we launched Gunship, and as Trip Hawkins said, anybody could sell Gunship. Thanks, Trip. <laughs> <laughs> But it was about 86 and 87 when uh, 
um, your famous one of your famous knights, who's a billionaire, offered to buy Microprose. Well, I don't want to use his name, but he does balloon things and space things and record things. <laughs> and we sat in a room, and for two days, he talked about him wanting to get in the game business, and he was going to give me really big bucks for Microprose. All I do is go play golf for a living or go find something else to do. Boy, I should have said yes. I'd probably be a much better golfer, and I'd be happier today. But I didn't, and he got into the game business the following year, and I think in four years it went zero to 200 million and back to zero, and he quit the game business. So, uh, you know, you, you make some good things and some bad things in your life, and that was also about the time that Tripp and I kept trying to talk each other into getting out of the business and or combining. Tripp says, you make the strat, uh, sim games, and I'll make the sports games, and we'll have a really big company. Again, uh, Tripp and I both had too big e egos to combine the companies, but it probably would have been a good thing to do. I hear uh, you and Sid were online gaming long before anybody else was. Well, Sid was always uh, playing with things and testing things. And uh, you know, remember the old tank game that uh, was on uh, the Atari machine? Well, he found a way that we could do that and shoot each other. I'd be in my basement, he'd be in his dining room, and we were playing uh, probably online games in 84. Uh, or late 83. But again, Sid tested things. He liked to uh, size something new. Solify came along because he learned to do line draw, for God's sakes. So he was learning this whole time. So uh, online gaming was something we were both interested in. Uh, and uh, we did it. He kept bringing practice things. Because, you know, when we were early in Microprose, he was still working full time at GI. He only did Microprose in the evening. I had left GI, and I was actually doing the, all the marketing and sales and finance and management and all that stuff full time. So Sid, would, it would be evening, and he'd call me on the phone, and we'd get on our bulletin board and ask, answer questions on our bulletin board. I was doing customer service, too. And then he'd say, okay, I got this thing. Here, download this, and now let's go play. And we'd sit there and, and play games with each other. And uh, he was just experimenting, looking for uh, new things he could do. Well, let's talk about Tom Clancy then. What was your relationship with him like, and um, how did you meet? Well, I was in Baltimore. Tom was in uh, in the Baltimore area. He wasn't really in Baltimore. He's closer to Annapolis. But anyway, I was in something called the Young Presidents Organization, YPO. And uh, YPO was always looking for speakers because like every two months we'd have a business speaker. And uh, I decided that uh, Tom Clancy, because I knew about his first book, uh, would be a good speaker because uh, uh, I had met him by him calling the Pentagon where I was working at the time asking questions and someone put him over to me because I was in the game business and he was in the book business. Okay. So anyway, I got to talk to him and I invited him to come to a YPO meeting and I have 50 company presidents uh, at this dinner and he's going to be our, our speaker. And he stands up and he says, you know, I normally don't like to be in a room with 50 uh, guys richer than me. I went, wow, this is going to go really good, isn't it? Woo. <laughs> so <laughs> we got to know each other pretty good and we were not close friends. All he did invite Sid and I down to go shooting with him at his house. He had a shooting range in his basement, for God's sakes. I don't know why he couldn't see from me to the computer screen. His glasses were thicker than mine. 
So anyway, we went down visited him once or twice. We had, and you know, he could talk your ear off. Uh, unfortunately, I can too. And Sid can listen, but ask really good questions. So we got to know him a little bit, and that's when I said, "Well, why don't we license Red Storm Rising from you?" Now I don't know if you ever read Red Storm Rising, but there's lots of different parts of it. He told me there was a a wimpy Zumi. A Zumi is an Air Force Academy graduate. He said he put the wimpy Zumi in there because that would be me. He was just picking on me. I, I said, "Oh, I'm not wimpy, Tom." He says, "Well, you are sometimes." <laughs> I said, thank you, Tom. So anyway, uh, Sid took it and made a, a very nice uh, submarine game out of it. And, uh, you know, we sold very well uh, Red Storm Rising. It wasn't an F-15, but it sold very well. And then we asked Tom to come to a trade show. And, uh, you know, he was this big technology guy. He was afraid of airplanes. He wow. rode a train from Baltimore <laughs> to Las Vegas. <laughs> no way. <laughs> and we had all these interviews lined up for him, but he kept disappearing. And we couldn't find him. And I finally asked my secretary, where is Tom? She says, every time you don't need him, he's down in the adult movie section down below in the basement. <laughs> we had to go get him. He says, well, these people really like me. I said, Tom, they want to know if you can make them a book that they can make into one of those adult movies. But we had to <laughs> drag him up to an interview. But, you know, the great game was great. He later uh, was a, uh, trying to be an investor in the new uh, Baltimore football team there. And, of course, by that time, I owned a soccer team. And uh, I brought my soccer team out to cheer for the the football team. And he told me, well, we're real football. You're that fake football. I said, yeah, but we're we're having fun, too. So <laughs> we knew each other for a long time. We teased each other. And he came to uh, Raleigh, North Carolina, where I started Interactive Magic, because he and I couldn't agree on how to start a company. He wanted to be in charge, but he didn't know anything about it. So he hired a British admiral, and he was the guy that ran his uh, Red Storm company down about a mile from my interactive magic company. So we, we fiddled with each other and teased each other for a long time. And what was your relationship like with uh, U.S. Gold? You know, you were selling items to the U.K. and Clive Sinclair. Uh, well, Mr. Jeff Brown. Mm. Oh, boy, there's some good stories there. Not many of them uh, available for family broadcasts. Um, <laughs> But it was, I think, was it 86 when Maradona had the magic hand and uh, yeah. Brazil won the soccer tournament? Yeah, 86. Yeah. yeah. So I'm in there watching it in a hotel. And we were just starting our microprose operation. That's when I met my first managing director. And uh, uh, Jeff comes in and says, Bill, 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 come on, come on, come on, come on, come on. I said, I'm watching the soccer match. He said, no, come on, come on. I said, we got to watch this. And I watched the magic hand. I walked outside and said, see what you bought me? It's some kind of fancy car, like a Lamborghini or something. I'm going, I'm driving a Chevrolet and you got a Lamborghini? What is this all about? And I, the very next day, went to uh, Boots. And I said, uh, uh, they had an appointment. And she, the secretary says, I'm sorry, he's too busy to talk to you. I said, is this your top 10 list? He sa she says, yes. I said, well, the top seven of those are my games. She says, no, they're not. They're U.S. Gold. And I said, no, no, they're Microprose games that U.S. Gold is selling. And if you want to keep them on your list, you'll get me in there to talk to your buyer because tomorrow I'll take them off. So I had to be a little bit of a dirtbag there. But I got in to see the Boots guy and end up having a great relationship. But right then I realized Jeff Brown was making way too much money, and I wasn't because he was paying us, what, a 10 or 12% royalty, and the rest of it was almost profit. 
And uh, I said, hey, well, we're going to change that. And that's when I went and uh, hired our first managing director because I put an ad in a local newspaper and said, I'm looking for a really good marketing person who likes fast cars, fast money, and fast women. I was just trying to be a smart pants. And I got 400 resumes under the door in uh, Sloan Square in London, people looking for a job. And the third guy comes in and says, you don't need to look at those anymore. I'm here. And he ended up being our managing director for the first uh, five or six years there. And he did a pretty good job until he and I had a, a little bit of a falling out. But he still calls me periodically to see how I am. So there we go. Well, obviously, then you expanded into the UK and you had offices around Europe as well. What was it like expanding you know, outside the US? Well, I said, well, uh, uh, where, Stuart, are we going to put our offices? He said, I've found the perfect place. And I said, where is that? And he told me, Tetberry. I said, well, why Tetberry? He says, it's the software distribution capital of Europe. I said, well, that sounds good. And I didn't go over there, and he was getting started. So I fly over, land in Heathrow. He picks me up, and I said, okay, I can't wait to see this fancy office where we're going. And he said, well, get in the car. Well, we're still driving. An hour later, I said, I thought you said it was a software distribution. What makes it the software distribution capital of Europe? He says, well, that's easy. We're here. What? <laughs> there was no no technology at all in Tetbury. It's where he lived. So, <laughs> so the office was his back bedroom. I'm going, what are you doing here? We should be near London where we can go out and see. And no. And so we end up having 300 programmers in a warehouse in Tetbury, England. Programmers, artists, game designers, you know, the whole group. And the thing that amazed me about uh, my uh, brilliant, in many cases, uh, British uh, programmers is they could go to lunch and have three beers and still come back and program after lunch. When I went to lunch with them and had three beers, I had to take a nap. So, <laughs> but we had one real problem in Tedbury. We have these 16 and 17 year old, very attractive young ladies going around giving teas at 10 and four and rest of the day too. And they'd be there for three to five months and all of a sudden they'd be pregnant and marrying somebody because these wow. programmers didn't know how to talk to girls. And if one brought them tea, all of a sudden they were an item. So <laughs> we'd replace our tea girls every six months, it seemed like. But they were all great people. I learned to play Skittles. How good is that? I got good at Skittles, for God's sakes. I didn't realize you had to bring a 12 year old boy to set up the pens, though. Uh, <laughs> but Tetbury was a, a wonderful place to have an office. I've met some really good people. I did have one small incident in Tetbury, though, and I'm not sure if I tell you this because they won't hear this, right? No, no I'm sure they won't. I don't okay. think we go out in Tetbury. <laughs> so there's a, uh, a pub called the Crown and Cork or something like that. I don't remember exactly what the name, but it's right there. It's one of the main pubs in Tetbury. So uh, my wife and I went in there many years later after we left, and I said, hey, do you remember anything about Microprose? And the guy goes, that, that, they owe us money. I said, oh, how much? He said, 1,000 pounds. I said, I've never heard of them. <laughs> <laughs> but evidently they left a, little, a small bill there, and I didn't know about it. So, uh, and the <laughs> I haven't other, been back since. <laughs> no, we, we actually met Sherlock Holmes there, but we won't go to that story till the next time. <laughs> uh, he walked in and sat down right next to my wife, and I went, holy mackerel, I thought he was a fictional character, but he really wasn't. 
<laughs> turned out to be a very famous artist that knew the queen and the king and all the important royalty and all the American presidents. And he just happened to have an office there in good old Tetbury, but he dressed like Sherlock Holmes. He offered me, my wife and I, a picture for $30,000. I went, I'm not paying $30,000. I later saw that his big paintings were really selling for a half a million. Maybe I should have picked that up. Oh, wow. <laughs> so great, great fun. Tetbury was a fun place to do. And the normal excitement was the annual uh, wool race. Every night the guys put uh, things on their back and run up and down hills. So I don't know. And they get the girl. Or I don't know what that was all about. I feel like I need a visit to Tetbury now. It's a great little town. And, you know, Lady Di had a place just like eight miles out there, and her guards would come in uh, to get games, and periodically she'd walk in, and the whole place would be a Twitter for two days. So uh, I never got to meet her, but only she came into our office on a regular basis to get games for the people that were around her. That's awesome. So uh, what was your relationship like with Sega and Nintendo, like when it came to porting with them? Well, I probably... Well, you got to remind me to separate those two because I am in my office. I have been to, uh, uh, to Japan because they invited me over to be their keynote speaker at a software publisher's event. And uh, for three days, I told them about distribution in the United States. And on the third day, I, I wrapped it up and I was supposed to go home the next day. And they said, Mr. Staley, we uh, moved your ticket one more day. They didn't ask me. They told me. And I said, oh, why is that? They said, well, we know you like golf. So we've arranged for you and 23 Japanese software company presidents to go play golf. I said, wow, because, you know, golf's expensive in Japan. So they started the day off right at 0600. They picked me up in a limo. They drove me to the Hanada Airport. All 24 of us trooped up on this 747, 24 guys. And they had two stews for each one of us. I'm going, wow, this is going to be an expensive cost match. I was wondering when they were going to ask me for my credit card. But they took me to uh, the uh, the largest island down in the south, and we played golf, and we had uh, we got a bath. I didn't know what to do. I, I'm, I'm with all these uh, Japanese guys. I'm about a foot taller than they are. We get to the golf course, and we all walk in the men's locker room, and they all start taking their clothes off. I went, what kind of game is this we're playing? And it turned out that they were going to take a, a bath and a shower before they went to play golf. And uh, I went, wow, that's pretty cool. And then we took one when we got finished with the golf course, and then they wanted to go karaoke. So I ended up having 24 hours with this Japanese group of company presidents. And during that period, Nintendo offered me a license, and I turned them down. But uh, I met Mr. Nakayama of Sega. And a year later, Nakayama calls me in my office in Hunt Valley, and he says, Bill, I'm a Sue Trip. I said, you're going to Sue Trip? He said, you gave him on the phone. We better sell this. I'm assuming for big bucks. And he tells me you're in it too. Because Trip and EA, of course, had reverse engineered the Sega machine. They yeah. were not paying any royalties. And Nakayama was pissed. And I got on the phone with Trip and Nakayama, and I helped them make a deal. So the EA got half cost of what everybody else was spending for royalties. And I put that deal together between Nakayama and Trip. So Mr. Nakayama liked me. And every time I went to Europe, I um, mean, to Japan, because, of course, we had a little office over there. He'd invite me to dinner. And he always say, I'll bring the girls. You eat the dead stuff, I'll eat the live stuff. I said, thanks, Mr. Nakayama. I heard that about 25 <laughs> times. And he'd bring the, the three good-looking girls, and they'd sit on either side of him, and he'd talk away. And he'd say, okay, girls, time to go home. And he'd take all three of them and go home. So I knew how Nakayama worked, you know. 
Well, then when we got to 1987, for Michael Prose, obviously a groundbreaking game came out, Pirates. How did that kind of change the style and output of Michael Prose, and where did the idea come from? Because <laughs> Sid got lost in the Caribbean. Pretty simple. <laughs> <laughs> I think about six months in, we started shipping a lot of stuff. And uh, we've decided that since we had uh, uh, three kids and uh, my ex was really didn't want to be shipping manager all the time, although she really was when we first started. So we hired a young lady right out of college and she just happened to be very attractive. And all of a sudden, Sid started hanging around my basement. I said, Sid, why did you have to come to the basement? He says, oh, I need to check the inventory. Sid didn't know inventory from Dingle Squat. Sid was just there to say hello to Leslie. <laughs> <laughs> and about a year in, he finally got his bravery up and, and started inviting her out. And then he says, well, let's go to the Caribbean. Now, this is a very attractive young lady in her middle of 20s. Sid's probably 30 right now. And he goes to the Caribbean with her. And she calls me crying. Because she can't find Sid. Sid wandered out off in the Caribbean looking at the history of the Caribbean and got all excited about the history and the pirates and all that kind of stuff and forgot to come home. <laughs> wow. <laughs> <laughs> and I had to send, uh, find somebody down there to go looking for Sid. And he was just sitting in a bar talking to people about the history. I mean, he was, wasn't trying to be nasty to anybody. He just was interested. <laughs> So he came home. He said, I love that history. I got an idea for a game, and he did Pirates. And, you know, it was a game that my three kids and I, we had three Commodore 64s set up at our house looking out over the backyard. And if you got up go to the bathroom, you lost your place in Pirates because we'd have all three of us there with one person standing there waiting for the next one to leave. So we love Pirates. We thought it was a great game. Uh, my grandkids, uh, my daughter, uh, married a guy with uh, uh, who had a daughter, and she was like eight years old. And I told her, I'm your new bonus granddad. She says, what's a bonus granddad? I said, well, you have a real granddad and your bonus granddad, and they both give you presents. She says, that's pretty good. She says, well, what, what do you like? I said, well, I, I like computer games. She says, well, I have a famous computer. Uh, I have a computer game I really like. I said, show me what it is. It was Pirates. Wow. And uh, I brought her an autographed copy of it. And to this day, she goes, well, bonus granddads are okay. So we, we thought Pirates was a great game. It was not one that I came up on. It was one of Sid. He loved history. And, you know, he was music and math and programming and history. I gave him the 2041 days of World War II for Christmas one year, and he gave it back to me, a book. Uh, he gave it back to me uh, at th New Year's. And I said, Sid, you didn't like the book? He said, oh, I love the book, but I already memorized it. I said, let me get this straight. You memorized this 500-page book? Well, the important parts, that's the way Sid was. He was so smart that he could uh, read something and remember it uh, right off the bat. And he was done with the book. He didn't need any more. So he gave it back to me. So he liked all that kind of history. That's amazing. So speaking of history, how did Civilization and Railroad Tycoon come? Like, How did they come from Avalon Hill? Most of the early military games came from me in terms of what I wanted to do. And we'd talk. And I said, well, I know how to sell flying games. I don't know how to sell any other kind of games. Of course, I was flying. I had a flight suit and I could dance around and be Wild Bill the fighter pilot. Uh, so all of a sudden Sid got this thing called Railroad Tycoon. I said, well, where'd you come up with that? He says, oh, it just seemed like a good idea. Well, of course it wasn't. And I heard from Eric Dot, the president of Avalon I, and uh, Hill, and he threatened to sue us because it really was a board game. Sid and a bunch of guys in the back played board games all the time. Uh, 
And it was a board game done by Avalon Hill. It wasn't called Railroad Tycoon. It was just railroads, I think. I don't remember exactly. And Sid made the game, and I took Eric to lunch, and we talked, and he said, okay, but don't let it happen again. Well, then uh, uh, a couple years later, he goes, or a year later, I don't remember when it was, he says, he calls me on the phone. He goes, Bill, Sid's doing it again. I said, what is he doing now? And what had happened is Sid showed us this game he called Civilization. I didn't know it was a board game. We started playing it. We thought it was terrific. And uh, uh, Eric calls me and tells me this. I go back in Sid's office. I said, Sid, did you copy that from Avalon Hill? He goes, yeah, but they they just have a board game. I've got a computer game. Tim, that was different. Remember, we started out in the pirate world. Remember? Yeah. So we're going back to this. And so I said, okay, Eric, let's go to lunch. I bought him three martinis, and I brought a piece of paper that said uh, we would put a card in our computer games, and he could put a card in his board games that would cross-sell. And after the third martini, he signed the paper. So uh, we were very lucky there. And after I left the company, there was a big darn uh, uh, suit about that. I think the guys after me actually either bought Avalon Hill or bought the rights to all the games. I don't remember. It was like a $50 million lawsuit. But, of course, Civilization failed when it first went out. You knew that, right? I imagine that game when it came out, were you surprised that it wasn't as successful as you hoped? Well, I shot 15000 to EB, and I got 14000 back. And I'm going... This is not good because this was our big title. And we thought everybody thought it was great. So I got all the guys back in and I said, okay, guys, we love this game. We think it's great. What do you think? Uh, do you have problems when you play it? And we just talked through a bunch of problems. And one of the guys said, well, I, I never know what to do next. And I said, well, what do you do? He said, well, I go in Sid's office and ask him. Light goes off my head, bang. So that's what the science and the military advisors and all that were. They were supposed to be sit in the box. So if you had a problem, the, the advisor would come up and tell you, invent wheel or invent gunpowder or whatever you needed to do. And once we redid that, and of course it, did, it helped a lot that I got Robin Williams playing it. And yeah, how did that come about? How, how did you get Robin Williams involved? Well, you know what? There's a whole bunch of people out in Hollywood that they 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 pretty special, but when they are by themselves, they play games. Another famous gamer was a guy who played uh, some of the best uh, detective movies out there, and we I won't go into that story, but he did stand next to me at the urinal and say, uh, "What do you, what business are you in?" I said, "We're in the game business." I said, "Well, uh, yes, sir, we're in the game business. What's your best game?" I said, "F15 Strike Eagle," and he looks at me and goes, "You're not Wild Bill Staley, are you?" <laughs> and I wanted his autograph, and he wanted mine. So, <laughs> so uh, uh, you know, uh, just, we just had a lot of fun. One time, Sid and I were in uh, one of the casinos there, uh, and we had a, a railroad tycoon horns. They were little wooden things that we'd go tweet, tweet. It sounded like a, a train horn. So he and I are standing at the urinal, and a cop comes up and stands to the other one, and his phone goes uh, – uh, or his – you know, his mic, his uh, uh, whatever radio he had. And he goes, uh, two guys in a casino, and they are blowing some kind of horn, so find them, get them out of here. Uh, Roger, Sid and I pushed the little uh, horns further in our pocket while he's standing there. <laughs> and what we did was, after the cop left, we went and said, well, what's this line for? And it was for Jay Leno. And <laughs> Jay goes down the line, you know, before he goes in, trying to get everybody excited and he comes up to me and i go 
Miss Leno, uh, this is for a great game called Railroad Tycoon. He takes it and blows it. And he goes, oh, this is fun. So he blows it all the way down the line, say hello to everybody. And he talks about it in his show. So we got Jay Leno doing the Railroad Tycoon horn. <laughs> and we got Robin Williams, uh, who really like games and especially like those kind of board games and we met him we gave it to him and he started talking about it on tv so you got to be lucky as well as good in this industry it's cool to hear about like the celebrities who like the games as well because i've always heard you know robin williams was always a big gamer so that's amazing so i think from- he was a big gamer but he yeah. also liked to get hugs for my pretty wife because i'd see him in a trade show and he'd go Hey, Bill, that's great. Where's Denise? I go, wait a minute. You're supposed to talk to me. Nah, he really wanted a hug for my pretty wife. <laughs> so uh, after that, Micropros was sold. Why was that? Well, you, you missed out a little bit here. Okay, so we're going to go back a little bit. We were doing great. We went public in 91. I bought myself an NSX. How about that? I spent way too much money for a car. Uh, my wife ended up driving it more than I did. And uh, we're doing great. And it's uh, December. We went public in uh, October of 91. Uh, in December of 91, I'm getting ready to take my family to the beach. And it's the 23rd of December. And they say, Mr. Taylor, you have a phone call. I said, I'm getting ready to leave. He says, no, it's Gilman Louie. He says, this is very important. And, of course, you know who Gilman Louie was. He had the Spectrum Holbite, and he had yeah. the Falcon game. And uh, he goes, hi, Bill. You need to send me a half a million dollars. I go, well, hello, Gilman. How are you? He says, no, you need to send me a half a million dollars. I said, that's nice, Gilman. Why would I send you a half a million dollars? Well, why I'd send it to him, because remember, who was funding was the guy, one of your famous uh, trash newspaper guys who ended up uh, uh, naked off a, a boat off of Spain, and they thought that the uh, Mossad had thrown him in. Who was that? Robert Maxwell, was, was it? Yes. Yeah. He was funding. And when he went away, Spectrum wasn't making any money. I said, well, what, what will I get? He says, Falcon 3. I went, ooh, I might like to have Falcon 3. So with no paperwork and nothing signed, I sent Gilman Louie a half a million dollars. And then uh, in January, we, I had a new board. We were now a public company. We had to have more financial types on it. Well, it turns out financial types are really nice if you want to do financial things. But they didn't know squat, jazz, diddly squat, nothing about games. So they said, well, Bill, you've been running this company for 11 years. You've gone straight up. Things are going great. Why don't you take a little sabbatical and go make those speeches you like making and uh, go play golf and let us uh, get things more professional this year? This is 92. Oh, boy. I was silly. I said yes, and I hired a smart guy to be present. Unfortunately, he came from the manufacturing world. And at Micropros, everything was a cash bonus. If you got your game out on time, you met the marketing objectives, and it was on the shelf by 1 October, we'd put 25% of the cash of the first year into a fund for the development team. So they could make some big bonuses. Well, I left, and he decided that was unfair to the programmers because it made them work too hard just to get the bonus. So we put them on overtime. So of the eight great games we had scheduled to come out in uh, 92, how many think came out? Two. How many? Two. One, December Whoa. 15th. 
And with almost 600 employees, how do you think that is for cash flow? Yeah, not great. No. So I came, I left in January of 92. I came back in September of 92. I said, well, these games are they're due in three weeks. Uh, we're a little behind. And by the end of the first week, I fired the president. Walked in the office, told him to get out. And he was a good guy. And he was a smart guy. But he didn't understand how you motivate software people. Because they're creative. If you let them say, let's make the world's best explosion, it'll take them 22 years to make it. Because they want to keep making it better. They'll think of something else. But if you tell them that they'll get a big bonus if they put it out on 1 October and no bonus if they put it out on 1 November, kind of motivating. You know what I mean? I found out if you align people's incentives uh, so in, they benefit and the company benefits, it works. And every consulting assignment I was in at McKinsey really emphasized the fact that you got to uh, align people's interest with a company interest if you want to make it good. If you're just there to sit in a place and just there to get a salary, you're probably not going to be motivated to do great work, in my humble management opinion. So he was gone. We put out F-15 Strike Eagle on December 15th, 1992. Uh, and then I knew we were really hurting for cash. I went to, uh, to uh, um, GE, their finance in, uh, group, and they offered us a $14 million equity investment. I went, wow, cool. That's great. And then uh, in February, about to sign the deal, I got it all wrapped up. And our financial officer calls and says, oh, we're going to have to restate earnings. Do you know what uh, happens when a public company restates earnings? It's a disaster. And GE ran off. So now I've got 500 employees. I've got enough money to last to the end of June. And uh, it's not a great time to put out uh, games. And I, then I uh, am at a show. I'm on the 27th floor. I've had a, a couple of cocktails. And I'm ready to jump off the building. Because I had a $10 million key man insurance policy on me. And I figured, wow, that'd be really good if my employees can keep their jobs. And uh, I was just trying to, I did, I mean, I liked them all. The best thing about Microbros is we had great people. They got along well. Sometimes we had some issues. One guy decided he was in love with me, so he had to put up a, a guard in the front door because he's going to bring a gun and kill me, he said. I went, wait a minute, you're in love with me, but you're going to shoot me? <laughs> What's that all about? But uh, my, uh, my financial officer talked me down from that, and I called Gilman, and I said, well, bring your investor, because he'd found an investor then, uh, a, a good uh, Kleiner Perkins, a venture capital company, and he was doing $6 million, and we were doing almost 50 and the venture capital company wanted to be big. So the way I tried to save our jobs was to sell the comp the, uh, sell big enough interest in the company that Gilman got to be the uh, CEO and I got to be the board member, hmm. uh, no longer the CEO. But you can imagine having been the CEO for 11 years and I started the company, it was pretty hard to sit as a board member. So in six months, I quit. So it was probably the worst day in a long time other than losing my dad or losing my parents uh, for me when I signed that paper on June 21st, 1993. So, but we had a great company, we had great people, and the people afterwards never did a good job, whether it was Hasbro or Interactive, I mean, uh, Infogrames, nobody did a good job with all the great people we had, and they let go a lot of people. So I was very sad when that happened, and uh, it, it, it really hurt. So I immediately went and played golf badly. Um, 
but I still like all the people. Uh, when we go on trips, my wife and I go on cruises on a regular basis. Uh, unfortunately, I talk about it too much. And somebody will say, oh, F-15 Strike, was my greatest game, uh, the greatest game ever. Uh, do you want free drinks? And we always go, yes, thanks. <laughs> <laughs> and why not? <laughs> so I, we, we go a lot of places and get beers bought for us. So what the heck? <laughs> well, obviously, like you said, Bill, I mean, it went through a lot of different companies. Spectrum Holobyte, Hasbro, Infograms, you know, then Atari obviously got Infograms. And then today, fast forwarding to 2020, Microprose is back and you're involved again. What's the story then, and why has it come back now? Well, David Leggetti, who is the CEO of the, of the new Micropros, was a fanboy. See, we got fanboys all over the world. And when he was 19, he was building cockpits for himself so he could play all our games. Isn't that nice? And uh, he went on to have a career uh, that was really into music, and then he learned programming. And then in 2004, he tells me, he started thinking about, well, what happened to that darn Microprose I like so much? And he started acquiring IP. And in 2018, somebody said, I didn't know you were starting Microprose again. I said, I didn't know I was either. And they said, well, your name's on this website over here. So I said, well, I wonder what this is all about. So, of course, I wrote to the contact thing and says, hey, you have my name on the, your website. You shouldn't have it without paying me something. You know, come on. I need a few shekels here. I'm an old retired guy. And uh, he said, oh, I've been waiting for you to call. And he and I have been talking for two years about things. And he's been telling me about all the games. You know, his real business is uh, defense contracting. Early in the, in the world, he actually uh, was on the team that built the Arma game. Uh, he, his company, uh, built a game for Microplay, one of our, uh, divisions at Microprose. And, but he left and started doing serious games, but, uh, he always wanted to come back. He uh, acquired a bunch of IP, a, a bunch of names, and he put up a website and, uh, he said, well, come on, Bill, you can help me. So he's helping my company, I entertainment improve my warbirds right now and I, we think we're going to take warbirds and take it to his software that he wrote for the defense industry he's still running his defense com companies and they're doing very well i just went to a military defense show with him back in december and we'll launch the first new games and basically i act as a consultant to Microprose, because there's what I call the spirit of Microprose. What makes great games, and it is you got to be playable. You got to let people in and have fun right off the bat. You have to let them learn. And as Sid said to me one time, we have to make games where players have to make decisions with limited information that have significant consequences, and reward them well if they do it well. And that was the theory, the spirit of Microprose in all our games. And, uh, you know, I, I, I'm, I continue to push David and say, hey, you're really into art. That's great. We like art, but it better be a good game, too. He says, well, while Bill, you get to test, play test every one of them. Because the big thing at Microprose is I probably played every one of our games more than anybody did, even the play testers. And I would say, hey, we need a deck gun or, hey, we need uh, Sid in the box. And they were always small suggestions, but they were always to make it more playable for players. And that's what I'm going to help David do, too. He's going to help my little company and I'm going to help him. And maybe one of these days I'll give him the whole company and I'll just sit on his board and play golf for a living. <laughs> and what titles can we expect? Well, he's got three basic military strategy games. One's really a, a, a strategy game that is more in a board game uh, 
kind of thing. And it, um, I just happen to have those uh, right here on my computer. The second front is much more of a board game. Um, the Task Force Admiral is very much like our Task Force 1942, but with terrific graphics. And Sea Power is a, another uh, command level uh, simulator, again, with terrific uh, graphics. I've seen all 22 games he's got in the pipeline. He's announced those three. And then, of course, he had to uh, announce the Mighty Eighth because he's working with me. And since my dad flew in the Mighty Eighth, he's going to do a Mighty Eighth game. The first one is going to be much more a VR, uh, you know, team uh, game. Everybody's got to do what their job is in the B-17. But we has a whole bunch of really cool products coming after that. They're more in the action simulator side. But he don't want me to tell you about them yet. So as long as I get to play them, I won't tell you about them. But once I start playing them, I'm going to tell everybody about them. So there you go. <laughs> I was reading, you know, the Mighty Eighth, obviously, like you said, VR. Um, I guess VR kind of changes simulation experience and brings a whole new angle to the games. Well, as I was getting interviewed by the New York Times many, many years ago, he says, Bill, what do you see the future of games? I said, well, I think that I will play golf and win $10 from the other old guys. And I'll get back to the house about 4 o'clock, and I'll walk in the door, and it'll say, I'll hear, good evening, Wild Bill. Would you like to pour, me to pour you a beer? Yes, Hal. Thank you very much. A beer, please. So what do you got for me, Hal? Well, Mr. Sa uh, Wild Bill, we have 4,942 people want to kill you from Europe and 8,946 from Asia. Shall I set up the game, sir? Yes, please fire up my VR chair and my simulator, and I'll be in there in a few minutes after I get this beer, and we'll go kill them all. So that's what my vision of gaming is. It will be a complete immersion it will be competition it'll be people laughing and uh, shooting each other all over the world luckily nobody dies the best kind of things us military guys like it much better when we just pretend to shoot at people rather than actually shoot at anybody so i think that's where it's going with vr and ar and of course david is doing this for the military when I was at the military show, he had a landing uh, system thing where you guys sat right at all the controls, just like he did on a real helicopter carrier and controlled the uh, uh, helicopters were out on the deck and you could see them on VR and you could look around and you could see what the uh, things are you had to avoid when you took off of the deck. It was just so cool. And that's all coming to the gaming world. And the question is, will we consumers have good enough hardware to play it? And I think we will in time. Well, Bill, you know, 38 years after you founded Microprose, it's great that you are back in the saddle. I mean, that must be a pretty special feeling. My wife says, you know, you were taller and skinnier back then, so you're going to have to change your act and get in shape here if you start going to <laughs> the trade shows. But, you know, I'm so excited about it because I get to play great games. I make, get to make contributions to them. I get to talk about them. And the best thing is there's some great people. David's got some great people working for him. I'm going to try and help him more on the financial and the uh, marketing side because that's what I'm actually pretty good at and he says come on Bill everything we do and he uh, uh, my wife and I went over and visited him and his eight kids last September in Australia wow. and I'm trying to get him over here to North Carolina so he can play golf with me sometime it, he, he was being so nice to me I'm, I'm we're in Australia you know Whereas a senior citizen flying that long is a long time. I mean, I had hose on. Come on, boys. I don't wear hose. <laughs> so uh, I get over there, and we have three days of meetings. He says, well, hey, we, oh, we got a little extra time. What would you like to do? I said, well, let's go play golf. He says, well, we don't know how to play golf. So we went to a golf course. Uh, 
uh, he had uh, three of his guys, uh, David and two of his guys with him. And on every hole, somebody lost a golf ball. There was only one person that didn't lose any golf balls in the whole 18 holes. I came back with the same three I started with. They each lost uh, 12 balls. So they decided they're going to have to do some work before they come to America to play golf with me. <laughs> but we had a great time, and they couldn't have been great at sports. And they all seemed like really good people, which is great, because that's what we had at Microprose. Well, Bill, it's been incredible getting these stories. We can't wait to see what's next from Microprose. It's been a pleasure talking to you as well. Thank you so much for being our guest this week. Thank you for letting me tell my stories. You know, my wife says I can talk about any story, anything in the world for an hour. And if I know anything about it, I can talk for four hours. I just like talking about Microprose and games. Have a great one, guys. Mm-hmm.